This podcast was produced for Quad by wordofmouthcreative.com. Quad sparks conversation. Hello and welcome to the Quadcast for May 2011. My name is Chris Wakeman and I hope the sun is shining wherever you are. Stick with me for the next 20 minutes or so to find out more about the massive array of fun things to see and do at Quad, Derby's premier art and cinema venue in the heart of the city. To compensate for the shortness of last month's episode, we've got loads to get through this time around, so let's not waste a moment by getting straight into it. May brings with it a new look brochure, which is now available in Quad and the art boxes throughout Derbyshire. The new brochure comes in a handy fold-out format that allows you to really explore the vast amount of things Quad has on offer each month. All the same content from the old brochure is still included, so why not take two copies, unfold them, and then put them on your bedroom wall so you can study the listings to your heart's content. Quad is a thriving centre for art and film, where there's always lots to see and do. Time now for an interview that I did as part of Quad's Film Lounge series of screenings. The Film Lounge is Quad's regular opportunity to show groundbreaking and original films and welcome people involved with their production over to Quad for post-screening Q&As and to meet those of you with an interest in getting into the business. It's been a few episodes since we've had a filmmaker interview, so I was delighted to sit down with the eclectic cast of collaborators who worked on the film Poor We Me that we showed at Quad in April. The following interview features writer-director Simon Powell, editor Simon Dinnigan, and actors Paul Hurstfield and Sean McKenzie, who all came along for the screening and then took part in a lively Q&A after the film finished. Big thanks to them for coming along and sharing their stories on low-budget filmmaking and beyond. I hope you enjoy the interview. Quad is groundbreaking, inspiring, fulfilling and fun. Simon, just to sort of kick off, can you just describe a little bit about the film for people who might not have heard much about it, what it's about um, and then how it came about? Yes, certainly. Um, first first answer to the question is, Paul We Me is about um, um, Gavin Brooks, who's a mid to late 40s um, man who's struggling with combating dyslexia. The dyslexia, that his inability to read and write feels the, uh, the aggression um, in himself. He's kicked out of the family home and it's a case of him then working on himself, you know, to correct, you know, to turn the negative into a positive. Um, but the, what's the juxtapose against that is the fact that he takes on a job, or he's kind of spotted in an incident, um, in a moment of uh, aggression to become a debt collector. So as he's working on himself um, in a physical and kind of psychological sense, he is also, you know, kind of contradicting everything that he's working on to, in order to win back his estranged partner to, uh, to, in an aggressive job, such as debt collecting. So it's kind of a character study of that tale. It's very emotive, it's very simple. Um, hopefully people that watch it will identify with it in some way, shape or form on the backdrop of a recession. In terms of the motivation, Basically, there's another feature film script there for him called Scorpio, and I took a scene out of that. The scene that I take out of that is actually appears in this film, and the character of Gavin is actually in this other film. And what I did was was devise a whole st- story narrative around this character from that other scene in another film, and kind of got into the mind of this character what actually is going on in this guy's head. Ultimately, because I was bored of waiting <laughs> for this other film to be made, and I needed to go off and do something other than short film. And um, so that was kind of the genesis, really, for uh, for Paul Wimmy. One of the big draws of it, um, 
about you know something that, that people might not know about the the production of the film is that it was made on a very very low budget which correct me if i'm wrong is 1380 pound spot on to the penny like that was absolutely to the yeah. penny absolutely to the penny that was my lunch <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you hadn't gone large on that last yeah. meal yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean obviously you know people will ask and you know lots of questions as well about the struggles of making uh, you know the, the struggles and the advantages of making it on such a low budget but how did that combined with like the low key efforts of, of working on it together with I know you're heavily involved Paul was heavily involved in sure. that as well in, in its genesis is that was that you know obviously it was a great experience yeah I mean to be honest with you I mean when, when we set out to make it you know I always had the confidence that we would complete the film the question mark against it was when you know and but there was no pressure attached to this whatsoever because there was no money from the outset it was always the intention to make this film for zero pounds because then when you're approaching people such as uh, sorry um, hire house companies for lighting camera equipment when you're approaching locations cast and crew bearing in mind when I wrote the script I only had Paul attached and a couple of crew okay so when you're approaching these individuals you, it gives me as the filmmaker and, and the sole drive the kind of hymn sheet really that when you're singing the same hymn to everyone. Well, if everyone buys into the idea and what you're trying to do, it just makes it much more simple. Uh, the conscious decision to put some money into the film, as you said, for 1,400 quid, was just, you know, for one scene, was just to give it more scope to open the film out. But we shot the film over an 18-month period, which I actually originally thought it'd take me four to five months to shoot. Got that one wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically, from that 18-month period of shooting it on and off for, what, let's say, about 30 to 32 shoot days, um, we had to do a, a one-day reshoot in that as well. I didn't even have an editor in place. You know, I just took it one step at a time, one function at a time, one phase at a time. So it was a case of getting through the weekends and getting through the day shoots, etc. And then, right, we've shot the film, who do I then approach? You know, yeah. and then by coincidence, really, you know, I was kind of put in touch with Simon Dinnigan, who sat to my right, and he, he, you know, he just we had a meeting in my office, and he requested the script, sent in the script, um, he read it, he dug it, and said, yeah, I'd love to work on this drama, and you know, and he donated, you know, at least nine, ten months uh, of his of his of his life and time, you know, to to start editing and, and doing the yeah. doing you know the really important work on it, you know, to come together. And so Simon, then you came into the project once you know it was they're heavily into the filming. Um, you know, how's that from from your perspective? Is that a, a good thing to just suddenly find something which is almost at, you know you've got all the material you need to then go ahead and and convert it into the, into the finished product? I or, came into it absolutely blind. I had absolutely no idea uh, what they were shooting on, uh, how it was shot. Uh, and the quality of the shots or the quality of the acting, I, I was absolutely open to anything. Um, I think I, I was I obviously believed in the talents of, uh, of Simon because I'd seen his work before um, and I knew him as a person. Uh, so coming into the project, I felt quite comfortable and relaxed. I had, you know, other work that was happening, but I'd never edited kind of this kind of long form. Obviously documentaries, yeah, but a feature film never ed edited before. Uh, and the process, really, of Simon arriving at my house with literally 60 HD cam tape <laughs> uh, and, and blagging all the equipment. I mean, I've got an edit suite at home in my studio, but we needed a HD cam deck. We brought yeah. all the footage in. So I, I knew the kind of, you know, what the script was about. I knew the kind of integral parts. I, th I thought there were going to be some issues. 
but fortunately there weren't too many. It was just the mammoth amount of footage that you've got to look through. But as I was logging and capturing the stuff uh, or ingesting into the uh, into the system, yeah. I could see all the takes. I kind of absorbed as much as I can, and then it was just an organic process from there. Really, what do we chop out? Where do we edit? Mm. It sounds um, because you hear a lot about like for lower budget films in particular, you know, certain first time directors will shoot only exactly what they need. You yeah, know, oh, they're making an 80 minute film, they've got 82 minutes worth of footage. Yeah. You had lots of takes, you were almost Fincher-esque in, sounds like with 60 takes. Well, to, to be fair, I mean, we, we didn't use a lot of the footage, uh, but there was a portion of footage that we didn't need, you know, it didn't serve the narrative. Um, I'm sure Paul will back me up and Sean in that respect um, in the res with the view that you know I shot what I needed you know I, when I got it I knew and I moved on I didn't really shoot the hell out of it to be honest with you I kind of really prepped what I needed um, you I know, could have done with some more actually in some places <laughs> well yeah 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 yeah. an editor would an, an, an editor would always say that but obviously when people are working for you free of charge I mean for example you know a couple of the guys especially the camera team work on Shameless full time and I knew they're doing 60 to 70 hour weeks and and, I'm, and they were donating their weekends to me and I knew they had families and loved ones etc and you don't really want to take the mickey out of them mm. so you, I tended to keep my shoot days to around six, seven, eight hours tops, really, because I was very conscious of the fact that they have a life. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, basically, you know, I had to be prepped to the hills, really, in respect of knowing what I wanted. And I think a lot of the cast, you know, and I, I remember Sean particularly, I mean, Sean is a local actor, obviously, and I remember Sean particularly where we did Sean's scenes and he was like, are you happy with that, are you happy with that? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. But he was kind of like, are you sure? <laughs> you know, because um, I just knew what I needed. Yeah. It was already in the head, you know, so, and I was very confident in making that decision. We've got it, let's move on. And yeah. most, most actors are used to doing, you know, quite a number of takes and then very often, like, the extra takes that you do aren't, aren't necessary, you know, because if the preparation's done and if it runs well first couple of takes, then you've usually, you know, you usually find you're going to use that take anyway, aren't you? Yeah. So, from that point of view, you, you could waste a lot of time. Plus, I mean, also locations, because you couldn't push locations too far. You'd, you'd be allowed to film in mm. a place you, and you weren't getting... You, you were know, given a window, you know, you turned yeah. it to a location where ideally you needed eight hours and you said, well, you got three hours. Yeah, yeah. Because you were paying them no money and you okay, well, let's get on with it, you know. Yeah. Literal, what, half an hour prep time, quick run through, let's shoot, you know. And it was, mm. it, it, that's, but that's part of the development, you yeah. know. You've just got to throw yourself into the lines then, I suppose. And, um, I mean, a huge difference is if, you, if you're doing shooting over the weekends is and you've got to get camera kit back and... You know, you've got to lock it up somewhere on the yeah. Sunday night, ready to get it back to wherever on the Monday morning. Then, you know, you've you you haven't got a long day. You've mm -hmm. got to be careful. And those deadlines actually help you to focus yourself, I suppose, really, and yeah. like, you know, get a bit complacent. Perhaps. It does. You're absolutely right. It gives you the focus. But what also what it does give you as well is trust in the rest of the team. Because I remember I'd worked with Paul before on a short film, as he's just said, and. I wrote the script with him in mind, so that was easy. But when it comes to the other part, such as Sean McKenzie's part, who plays Uncle Tony in the film, what happened was, in that respect, was I had to, you know, I trust my cast. So I would speak to a number of cast and go, right, I'm after a guy, he's of this age, he's of this kind of ilk, who do you know? Young and beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, he, and he's an A-list, and he's an A-list leading man. And um, But I'd spoke to Michelle Holmes, as we all know through Rita Sue and Bob Sue, and I spoke to Lorraine Chesham, uh, who's, you know, was on Early Doors and Waterloo Road, and this was via text. And what was the strange thing was they both texted me within the same, I think it was within two hours, they both said, Sean McKenzie. <laughs> 
which was weird. And I'd never heard of the guy. You know, honestly, I'd never heard of the guy. So it was a case of, well, I've got cast who I've worked with, who I trust, and them two are saying this guy's name. Get on to him. Yeah. Mm. So they dug out his details, passed them on to me, sent him scripts, got on with it. Done. Turned up. He turned up, you know, into Manchester. Um, done and done and dusted, you know, and that's how these relationships begin, yeah. you know. It's just a case of just being brave and trusting. And, I, you know, I'm very happy with what Sean's done, you know, on the recommendation of two cast members that I do respect and trust. Mm. This, um, Paul Wimmy, is your first feature film. It is. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, Paul... Obviously, you've worked with filmmakers like uh, Shane Meadows before as yeah. well. And how did coming into a film like this, you know, with a, a first-time feature director, the experiences you had, was it just, you know, hit the ground running or was it, you know, was it a great... In, I mean, in a way, it is hit the ground running. But to, to be honest, a lot of the times, the, the lower the budget, the more freedom there is, you know mm, what I mean? Absolutely, it, it, yeah, yeah, Sometimes, yeah. you know, having a big machinery around the whole thing, it's like, it's constricting and, you know... Yeah. Um, and I've wasteful, worked, isn't it? It, it yes. is wasteful, and I, I, you know, I have worked on places. I have <clears> worked <throat> on things where you know you're sitting in a caravan and you're hanging around, and you've not got any part of the creative process. You're there as a hired hand, and you, you know, you're not allowed on set till you shoot your scene, and then, you know, you do a few takes, and then you're gone, and that's it, and you're packed up for the day. But with something like this, where you're involved in the whole team and you know you are as responsible for everybody else as, as everybody else is for getting the kit back and for you know loading the van or you know um and getting there on time and helping but, out yeah but that but the, the beautiful thing about these kind of projects in my opinion which is what's really reiterates the fact that you don't need money is the fact that people take ownership yeah people care you know people put yeah. the tlc in and they go above and beyond the call of duty and for me as a young filmmaker that's all i was you know i met every single person you know, within reason, that was local to me, um, from an extra to a runner, to lead guy, to, you know, DOP, to, to vet them, to find out if they were of the same kind of ilk as myself and same energy and enthusiasm, knowing that they would turn up and give 110% on no money. Yeah. You know, because they're going to get re-employed on the next project, which we have a budget for. But what Paul's saying now is very, very true, you know, and I think it's imperative that people come together and, and kind of become very conducive to, to making the best of the projects and taking that ownership, it empowers them. Um, and for me, it's not a case, it doesn't make it easy, it makes it slightly easier. Yeah. You know, and, and it's so, I don't know, it's a cliche, but it is very collaborative. But if you can get people that are collaborative in a positive sense, all singing from that same hymn sheet, no, we've got no money, let's just muck in. Yeah, you know, not coming in, just going, I'll do my bit, I'm gone. I've said my line. Exactly, exactly. I didn't experience that once, yeah. you know, so, you know, I'm very proud of that fact, to be honest with yeah. you, and that's why I re-employ them. Yeah. And, and the way this industry is, especially in this country at the moment, is, is that you want to work with people that are putting the money on the screen rather than everything else that's going on around it. And Shane Meadows is successful because he puts the money he's mm. got on the screen and he doesn't waste anything. Yeah. You know, and Simon's the same in that. Is, is, you know, yeah, you can, you've got to feed people and you've got to kind of look after people and make sure everybody's all right. But ultimately, what you want is to get it up there. Yeah. Mm. Sean, so obviously once you were headhunted for the, you know, yeah. this role, um, you know, what was the... It was the very shoot? nice to be wanted. Yeah. yeah um, what, was, what was the film experience like for you then, coming into a film where, you know, two Brilliant. people... I mean, if I could go off and do other jobs, I'd always make films like this. Do you know what I mean? If I've got enough money to mm. feed me boys and look after me boys and you know I'd always do films like this for nothing because for me it's not about money it's not about 
stardom, fame, mm. or whatever. What it's about is the piece itself. It's about the craft, isn't it, mate? Yeah, it's about that. It's about the directors you're working with, the writers you're working with, the people who are involved in it. And for <coughs> me, in this present climate, I think more films are going to have to be made like this because I don't know where the money's going to come from. And I think if you care enough, you'll do anything at any time. Mm. So, mm. you know, uh, Michelle Facebooked me or texted me and said, look, you know, Simon's making this film. I went, yeah. Not bothered about the fact I've never met Simon. What I think is amazing is that Simon has got the chutzpah to do something like this. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. That's what I find, for me personally, inspiring. So, of course, if somebody says, look, this is a great script, you sent me the script, I read it, it is a great script, you know. So you still go through those same, you know, the traditional channels in that sense yeah, of like, you, you know, you, do you in read a, it, In a funny prep. kind of way, because if I was a donut, he's going to go, see you later. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but, but at the same time, if, you know, somebody gets in touch with you and says, oh, I've got a film, and you, you know, he's, there's, not, there's not something on the page there. It's like, you both, you have the but, faith to... Well, the yeah, thing is, yeah. I, yeah. I know Michelle, I've worked with her, we did a brilliant thing for Channel 4 called the Peterloo Massacre, and I've worked with Lorraine, I did a play with Lorraine, um, fantastic play a couple of years ago and they're both terrifically talented people now if they saying look Simon's great this script's great are you interested of course I am yeah. you know you'd be mad not to and it usually is the case you only have to read a couple of pages of script and you've got an idea of, of yeah. how, how it's gonna be and I mean from my point of view when you you read a script if you're imagining every scene you know, particularly with the screenplay, if you're imagining those scenes and you're seeing it as pictures, then there's no doubt about it. You, you know, it's a good script. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, we're delighted to be able to show the film here at Quad tonight. Um, and I, we were talking before, and you were describing the fact that 2011 is almost the year of Poor We Me. You know, how has touring it around the UK and maybe beyond as well been as an experience to be able to to show something on a very personal level and, and, and you know, bring it with you, really? Yeah, I mean, you know, what what's kind of the beautiful kind of experience of all of this is the fact that, you know, we set out to make this film. We didn't know if we were going to complete it and we didn't know what the end game was. In all honesty, you know, the, the whole process for me was a big learning curve. The fact that art house cinemas such as yourselves are actually watching it, embracing it, and wanting to showcase it to the local people is absolutely amazing, personally. Um, so I'm just absolutely thrilled, you know, to be taking it around, you know, all the, all the hopefully major cities within the UK, just to reach an audience. You make a film to reach an audience, it's as simple as that. You make a film to reach an audience, to show them what you can do. And um, so far, so good, it's going down well, it's going down positively. We're hoping, you know, we're screening the film for the whole of 2011. Um, it's kind of a self-distribution process, but you know, so what? You know, we're very proud of that fact. Unfortunately, we're still, you know, we're finding a lot of independent cinemas that understand the responsibility that they've got yes. to the local mm. community yes. to showing things that wouldn't necessarily get shown by the multiplexes. They understand that they've got a responsibility to get things out there. Yeah. And, and well, it's by watching films <clears throat> like this. If you don't have art, if you don't have film, if you don't have theatre, you don't understand your life. You know, it's, it's, it's how we understand our needs and our wants and mm. our life around us by seeing it reflected back at us. You know, and I think it's brilliant. I echo Sean and Paul's words there. I think it's absolutely brilliant that independent cinemas can actually be brave to watch something that's been basically dropped on their doorstep, watch it, connect with it, and go, yeah, we think we've got an audience for this. 
and screen it mm. because you'd be surprised a lot of cinemas that and this is art house as well if they could be more brave such as yourselves as the quad then hopefully you know we have we would reach more of a, a wider audience but unfortunately you know, a lot of them are going down you know the very very familiar route of commercialism the feedback we have we have had from every generation you know of people that have watched it so <laughs> yeah. far across it's been the positive spectrum. And, and we yeah. couldn't you know we couldn't have known what the audience out there was for it but but we seem to have had people of every age group just respond to it yeah. that's the nervous thing that is the very very big nervous thing for me as a young filmmaker and you're putting yourself out there you put your work out there and you go oh god here we go what's it what's the reaction going to be like <laughs> yeah. and it has been you know 95 percent positive so for me it's like it's been a great experience on long you know hopefully long may it continue because yeah. where i mean as far as this film is concerned then what what else would you like to to do with that with it or do you see it as a kind of stepping stone to like you said you know you've got future work now in the pipeline yeah i mean obviously the intention was you know was to make it was you know to i suppose the challenge was can we create something from inception and then complete the thing and and what we did was you know it, it, we've done that we've done that you know and we've got people interested well, we'll say people we've got establishments in london now interested in taking on this film and and, and distributing it it's as simple as that and, and from this project because we've made it for no money practically no money we've actually gained interest from from key leading people you know mm. uh, film production companies within the uk that have actually watched it and been very surprised by the quality of it uh, and are looking at my second project. Can you yeah. imagine what you do with four grand? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's quite it's because, I mean, something that strikes me is that, especially in the last like year or so, we've been quite blessed, uh, you know, to have like Nick Whitfield obviously made Skeletons, um, mm. there was uh, Monsters yeah. done by Gareth Edwards, and even yeah. somebody like Duncan Jones now is managing yeah, the yeah, second feature. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look at him, perfect example, yeah, yeah. you know. Because he, there was, I read a quote about him the other day where he said that. It's in terms of science fiction, particularly, um, he was looking at the idea that people who become filmmakers were reliant upon technology yeah. and yeah. you know computer graphics and yeah. stuff. And he felt, that especially this new wave of British filmmakers, were almost doing the technology part second. Like, actually, I need to co come up with the story and the yeah. character and stuff yeah. like that. And, yeah. You know, it, sounds, it very much seems that Paul Wimmy fits into that of like, I know I've got limited resources. Story. Yeah, exactly. You're writing your script to budget. I remember, I, you know, as I said, you know, I, I, I set out to make a film for no money, so I can't go writing something such as Moon, you know, like Duncan Jones has done, um, because I've got no money to back that kind of idea up. But so, you know, what's the next best thing? Or what's the only thing I've got is, is people's emotions yeah. uh, and what people have lived through. So I wrote something that's very emotive that hopefully the audience will connect with on some level. You know, if they don't, then hopefully they've been entertained in some way or educated in some way. If they uh, can identify with it, then brilliant. Then hopefully they'll go away thinking about it. And all the best films involve people, mm. not special effects. Yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, I, th I oh, think... Toy Story's good. <laughs> well, I agree. But then again, yeah, I think for me, you know, you know, for one of my people that I respect, or one of the filmmakers sorry, that I respect is Clint Eastwood. He, he, you know, he continues to do stories. He's a good storyteller, and you know, and that's how I see myself as a storyteller. Um, you know, that can engage an audience. You know, through through live action. Mm -hmm. You know, and not CGI. And all my scripts are, are written with minimal, if any, you know, CGI, etc. Because I think that's the art form, in my opinion. And it's about. It's bad. I mean, yeah, the, the human story. I mean, it is. People are affected in different ways by all sorts of films, but but you know if it makes people think, then it's that's for the me the responsibility of a storyteller or a filmmaker is if you can make an audience leave that auditorium thinking about the story, I think you've done your job. Well, because I, 
absolutely. Yeah. I think that's the same for, for a, a place like us as well. Yeah, know, as a yeah. distribution venue. Yeah. Perfect, perfect. Because I remember coming out of the cinema many times as a kid, coming into my teens, leaving the cinema, and you know, and being that film was held in my head, thinking about it, even like you know, 24, 40 hours later. I was, the director's done his job, you mm. know, in that respect. And this film's a real perfect example of, of what can be done. If you've got nothing, what can be done? You know, people will say no to you and turn you down, and to be honest, you've just got to get get out there and do something yourself. You've just got to get them do it. Well, we, you know, we met with a number of um, screen agencies and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and basically they, wouldn't, they didn't believe we'd do this. Mm. They, they actually poo-pooed us. Um, so this is my two fingers to them in a polite way. And if you can actually just back it up with a bit of passion, commitment, belief, get the right people behind you that support you, that are of like mind, um, anything's possible, mm. you know. But ultimately, uh, my advice is, it comes down to the scripts. I feel if the scripts there, people will work on it for nothing. And nobody really knows anything in this business, you know. If the BBC and Channel uh, Film Four turn down the King's Speech, then. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no experience in this that nobody knows anything. There isn't, because how can you think for the masses of the UK? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's, um, it's, it's completely irrelevant, in my opinion, but, you know. Well, we're, uh, we'd like to be able to show it, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see you back here for you many more will. features in the future. Here's you the future. Yeah. Thank you very Cheers. much. Cheers. Cheers. Chin, chin. <laughs> And just in case you didn't already know, that's exactly what happens when you put five northerners around a microphone and let us crack wise for half an hour. Thanks again, guys. It was an absolute pleasure. And coming up in May, the film land returns with a screening of Civic Life on Tuesday, May 10th at 6.30pm. Civic Life is a collection of selected films that the filmmakers have been producing with local residents and community groups since 2003. Shown back to back without credits or introduction, the individual shorts come to life when they're seen together. Quad is delighted to welcome directors Christine Malloy and Joe Lawler for a post-screening Q&A on May 10th. Make sure you're at the screening to see this amazing film and learn more about the effect filmmaking has on local communities and the opportunities that are out there to get involved. Tickets can be booked at the Quad box office now. Let's take a look at some of the other great films on offer this May. Films coming soon. As always, my picks of the month are a diverse group of features, starting with Attack the Block, which is the directorial debut of Joe Cornish, who you may know as one half of the amazing comedy duo Adam and Joe. The film sees a group of inner-city hoodies facing off against an alien invasion and promises the same mix of laughs, horror and action that made films like Shaun of the Dead such a huge success. Fingers crossed that Attack the Block does the same for Joe Cornish that Shaun of the Dead did for Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright. Quad is delighted to be showing the film from release date and it's showing daily from Friday, May the 13th. From Friday the 6th, Quad will be showing Meek's Cut-Off, which is a gritty Western drama starring an almost unrecognisable Bruce Greenwood and Michelle Williams, who you may recognise from Blue Valentine from earlier this year, as they trek through arid landscapes on their way to a new life. One to keep an eye out for if you enjoy True Grit. Luke Besson is back with the extraordinary adventures of Adèle Blanc-Sec, a French epic adventure in the vein of Indiana Jones and the Mummy series, which also happens to be a comic book adaptation and promises plenty of thrills and spills when it comes to Quad from May 13th. And at the end of the month, keep an eye out for spy action thriller Hannah from Joe Wright, the man who brought you Atonement and Pride and Prejudice, which also features an original soundtrack from the Chemical Brothers. And Apocalypse Now is re-released again on Friday, May the 27th and will be showing daily at Quad. The film that needs no introduction is presented in its original cut, not the redo version, 
and is also being shown as part of our Discover Cinema series on Saturday, May 28th, where lecturer David Lester will present an illustrated talk and presentation that goes behind the scenes and recaps the troubled history of this cinematic classic. Check the brochure and the website, or contact the box office for screen times and more details. Quad is a thriving centre for art and film, where there's always lots to see and do. On Friday, May 13th, Quad is doing its bit as part of Museums at Night 2011 by running the late-night scribble upstairs in the box from 7pm until 11pm. The floors and walls of the box will be covered in paper and our artists and facilitators want you to come along and get involved by drawing, scribbling, sculpting, generally letting your imagination run wild. The event runs until late and the box windows will be open so you'll have a fantastic view of the marketplace to inspire your creativity and watch the sunset. Definitely a night not to be missed. From May 9th until the 27th, Quad's ground floor entrance and cafe bar are being refurbished as part of our mission to make Quad as welcoming and refreshing as possible, but will still be business as usual. Our cafe bar is relocating upstairs to the box to provide an inspiring view to enjoy a drink with, and our orchid bar will be open all day to provide drinks and a limited food menu. We're also creating a temporary box office upstairs so you can buy tickets whilst the work is being carried out. But remember, you can still book tickets online where you'll also receive a discount and collect them from the quick ticket machine in the foyer. Quad conversation. And finally, check out www.connectquad.com, the new home for the Connect at Quad Collective, which brings together all the free and exciting events that happen at Quad each month. If you attend Film Quiz, Book Squad, Knit Squad, Sunday Cinema, Quads Poetry Night, This Song Will Change Your Life, Hatched Out, The Long Player, <gasps> or any of the other great events that happen in and around our cafe bar, head to connectquad.com and interact with other members of these groups to share your experiences and meet like-minded people. And with that bumper dose of information, we're done for another month. Remember, you can email me at chriswdarbyquad.co.uk with any feedback on this quadcast or quad in general. Thanks as always to the extraordinary producer Mark and his amazing new filing system. I'll speak to you in time for June, and remember to keep listening for a preview of our upcoming Quad Gallery audio guides, which will be available in full for the opening of All That Fits, the Aesthetics of Journalism, on Friday, May 27th. See you next time. This podcast was produced for Quad by wordofmouthcreative.com. Thank you for downloading this audio guide to Quad's latest exhibition, All That Fits, The Aesthetics of Journalism. This exhibition runs in the Quad Gallery until Sunday, July 31st. Quad senior curator Alfredo Cramarotti discusses the formation of the exhibition and its unique presentation and structure and picks out key pieces of artwork worth keeping an eye out for. The idea of the exhibition came really uh, from um, seeing that around us there are many different uh, levels of society in which we live and art is, is, is one of these levels which we can enjoy, we can get access to certain information, we can have a pleasant experience or awful experience at the, uh, as well. Um, so actually the idea was to uh, really um, understand art uh, rather than as a state of contemplation to understand it as a sort of a um, movement, something that it puts you in motion, something that puts your uh, senses in touch with an external reality and that's how 
uh, you appreciate things. Uh, it can be a, a visual experience, it can be uh, an oral experience, it can be a bodily experience, and all this kind of a um, way of feeling, we call them aesthetics, basically. That's what aesthetics is about. And from this idea, um, we develop the fact that, uh, to some extent, art and journalism are not very separate. Are, there are two, basically, there are two systems of transferring information, to delivering information to us, to make the world out there make sense, to, to, to digest what is out there, uh, both in space and time. Um, of course, journalism is a very uh, coded activity. Uh, it has certain rules, uh, quite strict to some extent. Art is meant to have a different set of rules, uh, or better, is meant to uh, question its own rules at every step. Uh, but somehow both systems are um, uh, a representation, basically, of what is our life in, in our society. And in the 21st century, uh, where we are now, I think it's really important to understand both. Thank you for listening to this quad audio guide for the All That Fits the Aesthetics of Journalism exhibition running in the Quad Gallery until Sunday, July 31st, 2011. This audio guide is also available by the QR codes in our gallery, on MP3 and through our website at www.darbyquad.co.uk forward slash multimedia. Look out for more QR codes and Quad audio guides coming soon for future exhibitions.